Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Episode 21, the trick to writing smart uh, goals continued. Hello, collaborators. As you probably recall from last week, we were chatting with Liz and Amy about how to write smarter, smart goals. And quite randomly, Juju, who is Mandy's lovely daughter, ended up uh, crashing our recording session. Um, And it just became actually a perfect point for us to stop and resume um, chatting further. So this episode is a continuation of our previous episode about writing smarter goals. And it really highlights a thinking process of how to get really precise when you're trying to write those goals so that it makes it easier to take data. Because if you can figure out what exactly you're working on, what you're trying to measure, it can really help you when it comes to um, data collection and really simplifies things for everyone. So I'm not going to talk anymore, but I do want to remind you that, again, we are not here to make anyone wrong or right, but shed light on a different perspectives. And Liz and Amy do a perfect job here of really speaking to that three C's, right? creating that curiosity to learn, considering another approach and becoming comfortable with the discomfort of collaboration. Here are Liz and Amy again. Well, thank you so much, um, Amy and Liz. That really was helpful with, you know, the breakdown of how to pinpoint a goal. I think that's probably the hardest part for OTs because we tend to think very broad. So if I could just go back to the SMART acronym and if we can just kind of go through each area and maybe you guys can give us some, you know, something we might want to think about with each one. So the first part of the SMART acronym is S, which is specific. So from an OT standpoint, it would be, okay, well, what am I teaching? Uh, What do I want the student to be able to do? That's kind of where I would start. Is there something more that you would want us to ponder? I would say... As behavior analysts, and even more so as precision teachers, we're going to dig down as far as we can. (laughs) So yes, I think that would be a good starting point, but then we're probably going to make it more observable. When we talk about pinpointing, we talk about the dead man's test. If a dead man can do it, then it's not behavior. When you're looking at that goal then you want to think about it and make sure the language that you're using in there is actually real like behavior and 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 can it be broken down into something that's measurable and so that's where that pinpointing comes in handy when we're pinpointing we talk about what's called a learning channel right so it's this it's the sensory input and the sensory output let me give you a goal if that's okay that would be helpful yeah it, just cuz i want to make sure ot's can relate to it so for example would be By September of next year, given adaptive paper, Kate will write her first and last name with 80% accuracy in three or four trials. Okay. So that would be a grand goal. Okay. So my first question, I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of ask you a bunch of questions about it. And I think that'll illustrate how specific I would be. So when I hear that, or when I would read that goal, I still don't know if we're talking about 
positioning letters on a pa paper. So are we talking about the size of the letters? Are we talking about are the lines of the letters straight? Are we talking about if we're doing lowercase letters, does uh, the on the G, does the loop go below the, the dashed line and the tail hang down under, right? So is that what we're looking for? And, and the reason I think that that might be it is because you said adaptive paper, but I don't know. And so then the other option, I'm like, well, sequencing. Sequencing letters makes me think about spelling. And so I don't know if we're talking about sequencing or if we're talking about formation. So if I was going to write that goal, and I obviously, I'm assuming you know the answer to that question, I would be more specific with it in the language I use so that no matter who looks at it, they know exactly what I'm talking about. So for that goal, in your mind, what were you thinking exactly that would have been? Would have been? I was thinking that it would be proper formation of the letters of her name and sequencing and on the line. Okay. So do you see what I mean? So it's I, I very mean, broad, I'm yeah. thinking of the grand, yeah, the grand result that I want. And yes, I would have benchmarks. So like for a benchmark, which is over like three, four months, it might be a little bit more succinct. For example, she'll write her first name. But again, I see what you're saying. I, I'm, that's still very broad because I haven't said what it is that the issue is. Yeah. And so I think whether she's, you know, benchmark number one, writing her first name, benchmark number two, writing her last name, or mm -hmm. benchmark number three, writing the whole thing. Well, she already did the first and the last. So that is the whole. So by the end of benchmark two, she's already done the whole thing, maybe not at the same time. But when you look at them as separate skills, as in like, how the letters are formed or the size of the letters or the lines straight, right? There's a lot of what we call component skills that'll go into that. So how can they make marks, straight marks on a page rather than a whole letter? And so I might think about it in terms of that and do my benchmarks according to those things. So I might say by the first quarter, she will make straight lines on a paper if that was an issue. So I might just focus on getting it nice and clean, getting her handwriting nice and clean. So I might be specific to that. And then the second benchmark might be she'll sequence the letters correctly in the spelling of her first name. And then right, the, right. the third one might be she'd sequence the letters correctly in the spelling of her last name so that by the end we've got correct formation, spelling of first name, spelling of last name. When I think about those pinpoints, that's how I might try and, and get them all covered in that one overarching goal. Okay, so that was uh, the S part of SMART, so that's specific. And then M would be measurable. So, you know, in my example, my measurement was based on, of course, 80% accuracy and three out of four consecutive trials, which I know is a big no-no, but that's pretty <laughs> much um, how most OT goals are written in the score system. Um, so how could we think about that more from a precision teaching standpoint? Well, I think there's a couple things we can do is we can modify that, that accuracy goal to say something more specifically related to a frequency or a count per minute. So what I would specify in my measurement part of this goal would be the number of correct responses required. And maybe instead of saying a percentage, I would say with X number of correct responses and less than X number of incorrect letters. Wait, isn't that the same as percent? 
there's a lot about that that's the same. So saying percent correct just specifies that they could do it once or they could write three letters out of, what is it, four letters out of five would be 80%, right? So depending on how we're setting this up, we might have them write their name multiple times. We could have an opportunity to measure the amount of letters written over a longer time horizon, or we could just measure those five letters in their first name. Let's say that their first name happens to have five letters. We could still just measure that one time and be counting four out of five. But what changes is the amount of time that it took to complete that entire word. So that will change. You could still put 80% correct on there. It's just more specific that it would be you know, let's say your goal is four correct and less than one incorrect. But of course, my my goal would be 100% accuracy. So I would up that because we know that that 80% accuracy doesn't necessarily give us anything. So I would specify all of that. So an amount correct with less than a certain amount incorrect over a specific amount of time. Oh, I was just going to say also, you know, when you're using percent correct, it could be four out of five, it could be eight out of 10, it could be 80 out of 100, it could be anything. And so that leaves it really up to the person who's in charge. Whereas if you write a goal that says eight out of 10 across four days in a row, or 10 out of 10 across four days in a row, then it's very clear what we're looking for. And you also are controlling for the number of practices that are available. Got it. And then the next one is attainable, which is A, you know, how are we going to attain this goal given the amount of time is basically what that's looking at. Um, this is a little skewed because obviously in the school system, we just don't have a lot of time. We only have 15 minutes per week. So typically how I manage that is, again, you know, teach those component skills to fluency. And then I recruit parents and teachers and parents to follow through during the week if possible. Do you guys have any other suggestions? No, I really like that because for these small things, again, you might be able to get that learner to practice it much more often and without you necessarily being there. So once you've kind of established a behavior, then it's just a matter of practice. And so I love that you said, this is something they can practice with another teacher. This is something they can practice at home. That's a great way to make that work. Because one of the things that we know from watching data move forward on the chart is we know that if you're only practicing once a week, you can lose momentum because you're not able to continue to build on that day to day. So that's a great way to do it. Even if you don't have that up available to you, that option to do extra practice, even then I think making sure that you're tackling a part of it that you can see move is going to be really useful. And that component breaking down those skills, like we talked about with pinpointing would do that for you. Plus I think just, um, the applicability and generalization of other people, you know, where they might present it slightly differently, or maybe you're not as reinforced with that person, or maybe you are more reinforced with that person. I've definitely seen a distinction when I run the program compared to someone else. And then I observe them and I go, oh, what's different here? So it's just interesting to sort of see how that all changes. I'm guessing based on reinforcements and other contingencies. Um, but the last two are relevant. How, you know, is it meaningful to the client? That's what we look at. Is it addressing participation, which is what we look at in OT, uh, which I'm 
I'm guessing is similar to ABA, um, social significance. Yep. And then time bound, you know, how quickly can this goal be achieved? Again, this is a little skewed because our goals are broad and they're over nine months during the school year. But um, using precision teaching and fluency, I've taught kids to tie their shoes, you know, within the first quarter. And I'm like, okay, I'm done. So it's definitely feasible. And what the one thing that I've noticed is when I started taking data, because I hadn't done it for, what, 20 years of being an OT, and I just started doing it the last five years, sheer act of taking data changes the outcome. I was like, blast, who who would have thought? (laughs) So that was a huge thing for me. Um, And it's so reinforcing for me as a therapist and obviously very reinforcing for my student. So anyway, I'm going to wrap this up now. Um, Unless Mandy has any other questions, I was going to ask one more question. Mandy, did you have any other I have a thousand things I want to say um, but, <laughs> and lots of questions for these lovely ladies, but I'll let you go ahead and, and finish up with yours. Okay. I just wanted to ask both of you if there's one tip or piece of advice, you have so much advice, but if you could just pick one that's um, attainable and relevant for the audience here, what would that be? The motto of precision teaching is the learner is always right. That's number one critical. So If the learner is exhibiting a skill deficit or a certain behavior or whatever, it's because of the conditions that are the contingencies that are in place, the environmental variables that are in place, and their skill set and their motivation. And so they're right, and it's our job to change to fit their needs. So we, we talk a lot about ascent-based learning, and so that's kind of getting the learner's approval and, and willing participation to participate with us. And so I always, with every learner, every behavior, every situation, always go like, okay, they had just punched me in the face. They're right. What am I doing wrong? What is the, what's the environment doing wrong? Like, what, what can I change around this learner to make them feel better, number one, the emotional responding is going to be number one. And number two, then like to be able to get them into a place where they can learn. So I'd say the learner is always right. It's my, it's my, I just have to say, Liz, thank you for saying that because there is this myth and misconception that ABAs are doing something to the student, that there is no assent. So I'm so grateful that you brought that up because I, I want to make sure that the audience understands that that's not at least always the case, maybe it used to be, I don't know. I don't know where it was, but I know now that at least in precision teaching, I've seen it. I've seen students that I've worked with who are so engaged in the data. They're like, oh, what was my school? Okay, let's, let me see if I can you know, get better. So that social emotional aspect is so important and so lovely that we're able to incorporate that. Um, Amy, what are your thoughts? Well, Liz took mine, but that's always the right answer. So that's first, first and foremost, learners always right. But along those lines, what I think I would say is make your data work for you. This relationship that people have with data, where it's this thing you have to do that just reminds you that you're not making progress, then you're not taking data that's doing this for you. So part of the learner always being right is taking the right kind of data so that we can see if we're making progress on a daily basis. 
So that's what I would say. Dig deeper, go smaller if you need to, because if you're seeing daily progress, again, that interaction between you and the data, the learner and their progress, your ability to kind of see what you're doing in a positive way is all affected by your data. And another piece to that is showing your work. So keeping track of those changes that you're making so that you can look back and say, already tried that, definitely didn't work. I'm going to try something new. Let's see if tomorrow's any different. And you're already doing that. This is just a way to have a record of it so you can kind of look back and see all of the things that you've accomplished. So can I jump in there? Wow. Because I do have a question. (laughs) Uh, So, so many of our listeners here will be wanting to know how they can get in contact with that data through the standard acceleration chart. Guys, um, you explained to us that you're in the process of, of launching training. How can people access that? Sure. Come find us. We are trying to be all over the internet right now, but um, <laughs> you're welcome to find us on our website at octavetraining.com. So our company is called Octave, and we are working with both organizations and individuals. We're launching a program called Project Blue to focus on working with individuals, individual practitioners to apply this to their learners. And learning how to chart is one of our favorite parts of that. Great. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yes, and uh, we will have uh, the resources uh, available for the audience that you mentioned, Liz. Thank you so much. Can't, can't thank you enough for being here and sharing all this lovely information with us. It was a pleasure. Yes, we had a great time. Thanks so much. So remember, the most valuable resource we have as therapists is each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And Haru from Down Under.